Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Father, I pray for these next few minutes together uh, that you would be showering fresh grace on us through your word. Father, we are so uh, needy. We know that we're needy, and yet we're not even aware of the depth of our needs and all the different ways that they show up in our lives. So I pray this morning for all of us, uh, humble us, Lord, help us be more aware of our weaknesses, of our fears, of our sins and shortcomings. But in the exact same moment that you're humbling us, would you be encouraging us and lifting us up uh, as we look unto you and really have our fears dispelled uh, by your power, by your greatness. I do pray, Father, even as we go over stories that my guess is most of us are pretty familiar with, that there would be at least some fresh sense of awe and wonder and worship, uh, and at least in a small way, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, guys, uh, here in perfect timing. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up into Genesis chapter 6. Um, while you're turning there, what we're going to look at today is the covenant of grace. All right, so the first idea we looked at just really what is a covenant. Um, and we primarily focused on the first covenant that God had with Adam. And we said there were two or three different things that theologians his, historically refer to that covenant as. Anybody remember what we typically call the first covenant? Okay, the Adamic covenant, yes. Covenant of works. Covenant of works, yes. Sometimes people will call it the covenant of the law. I mean, excuse me, not the covenant of the law. Yeah, sometimes people will covenant the covenant of the law. Sometimes people will call it the covenant of life, and here's the reason why. They'll say, well, technically, yes, works were involved, but it was even still a gracious covenant in one sense because Adam didn't start at a place of neutrality. He started at a place of so much blessing. There had already been a ton of grace given to Adam, so to call it the covenant of works. Some, but covenant of life, covenant of works, covenant of law, any of those will work, okay, Adamic covenant. The covenant of grace is what we're going to focus on today. Now, really, the covenant of grace started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that we looked at two weeks ago when God said, you're going to stay alive, you're going to have babies, and a sin crusher is going to come, a snake crusher. Uh, and then, we're not going to take the time to do this, but if we just read from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, which in the history of the world cover like thousands of years... What do you remember when you just don't, you know, don't even look at your, just try to think in your mind. When I think about Genesis chapter 4 to Genesis chapter 11, what stands out to you? Tower of Babel. Okay, Tower of Babel. Anything else? Flood. The flood. Corruption. Right. Bad stuff, right? I mean, there's not a ton of heroes. We think about all the negative stuff, and it's like there's thousands of years of human history, and it's just a lot of sin, right? I mean, Genesis chapter 4, the first murder, Okay. You get polygamy starts pretty soon after that. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 is a very good summary of all those years. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continual. It was bad and there was a lot of wrath. But at the very end of Genesis chapter 11, God decides that he's going to start with one man. And he's going to start working towards salvation. He is going to start... Again, the covenant of grace really already started with Adam in Genesis chapter 3, 15. But really what you're going to get after this is all these subsequent epics and episodes of the covenant of grace. 
And so go to Genesis chapter 11, uh, and let's jot down to verse 30. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son's wife, son's Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died. Okay, so there's some movement there already, and, and we learned just a couple things. Okay, you got this guy named Abram. He's married. He's got a wife who's barren. Okay, we're going to find out he's a very rich man. He's a very prosperous man. Okay, uh, later we, there's a story where we find out he has 318 armed servants. So he's a very rich, wealthy man. He was living in this city, you know, Ur, which was this, this marvelous uh, ancient city. I even heard one guy say that they probably had some form of running water even back then in this ancient city. That's the type of prosperity, even in the ancient world, they were living in. But let's look at what's going to happen. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So leave all this wonderful prosperity and go somewhere, and just trust me. I'm not even going to tell you where you're going yet. You're just taking off and going. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, excuse me, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed. Now, so think about this. Uh, 75 years old, got a wife, no kids. We're going to see him. He's going to struggle with some fear. Okay, I mean, initially, God makes him this great promise. He gives him command. He gives him this awesome promise, but he says, you got to go. And Abram obeys. It's awesome. Okay, chapter 13. Okay, he goes into Egypt. I don't know if you remember that. There was, there was famine. He goes down into Egypt, but it's a scary time. Chapter 14 is when Lot gets taken hostage by some bad kings. Abram has to go, and he has to fight against them. So flip over to chapter 15. Let's pick up here. Chapter 15. This is 25 years later. Now he's 100 years old. Still got a barren wife. No kids. Okay. Uh, since the first time God spoke to him. And let's start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So, 25 years later, Abram's been trying to walk faithfully. God shows up, speaks to him, and the very first thing he says is, Don't be afraid. Fear not. So we ought to stop and pause and say, okay, what was it Abram was probably afraid of or scared? It could be, I just went, captured Lot, fought this big battle against all these bad kings. Maybe they're going to come get revenge. That might be part of it. And God says, I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to protect you. But what does it seem like is really the main thing on Abram's heart that he's fearing when you just read those first three verses of Genesis 15? What's that? Yeah, God's not going to be faithful. You made me these great promises. You told me to come out here in the middle of nowhere. I trusted you. I've launched my whole life on you. And part of this promise was, I get to have a family. I get to have a huge family that turns into a nation. And you just think about it in our own lives, guys. 
Okay, don't worry, I'm not going to ask any of us to share publicly. But when you think about what you tend to fear the most in life, what you tend to worry the most in life about, maybe when you struggle the most with doubt, I don't think for most of us it's looking back. Now listen, we all have some fears, some regrets, some pain, but most of it is we're looking forward and we're anticipating bad things happening or the good things that we long for so much not happening, and that's when we start to panic and freak out, is it not? So again... It will be helpful for the rest of this morning's lesson if you will think to yourself, what is the thing in, in the future that I'm wanting the most and hoping for the most, but at times it seems like it's not going to come? And just, I don't even think I have to say this, but I will say it anyway. Obviously, I, I think it's best, don't think about like the sinful things you want. Like if you're like, I've always wanted to have a successful career as a heroin dealer. Okay, that's probably not the best example for the purpose of this class, okay? Think about the good things, the positive things you want, right? Like, I want to be married. I want to have kids. I want to have a fruitful, fruitful ministry. I've got this friend or this family member or this student that I'm trying to lead to Christ, and right? The, the positive things like that that you want. And you know all the right answers, but if we got down to the gut level, visceral level of your heart, you say, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It's been a long, long time. It hasn't happened yet. Practically speaking, based off my circumstances, why should I think it's going to happen? Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 is a great verse. Anyone that comes to God must believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those that earnestly seek Him. True faith really has two parts. Believing God exists, that's pretty obvious. And even based off what we said from Romans chapter 1, you can make, I think, a very good biblical argument. Everybody has that kind of faith. There is a God. But the second piece is where we get into trouble. That he's a good God. And that if we earnestly seek him, he will always reward you. And did you notice even the language that he uses here in Genesis 15? I'm your reward. I may not give you all the specific gifts that you want as your reward, but I'll give you something better. I'll give you myself. I'm the great reward. Better to get the giver than the gift. Okay? Now, there's one commentator on this passage, and he had a couple of great quotes. First, he said, Faith is a problem when it clings to the problematic present. And here's what, When I'm just looking at my present circumstances and saying, based off what I can see, of course your faith is going to struggle. Right? Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. He, he went on to say, If not given now, we assume that it never will be. Have you ever had an experience like that in your life? You're praying for something, you're working for something, you're anticipating something, and maybe you think it's going to come tomorrow for whatever reason. You have good reason to believe this thing is going to happen. And then you wake up, you go through the whole day, it doesn't happen. And what happens to your spirits? They just kind of get crushed because there's some sense of, it's probably never going to happen. There's a, a commentator on, uh, named Joyce Baldwin. She had this great quote that I love, partially because it's just easy to remember. God's delays are not denials. Just because God, circumstantially, is saying to you, to me, and whatever, not right now, doesn't mean he's saying no, never. But I think part of Satan's work in our minds is to say, see, God didn't give you what you wanted right now. He's probably never going to give it to you. And we start to freak out. We start to panic. And we do that. We get into fear, and we take matters into our own hands. Okay, so, again, think about what is it. And, again, most of the time, it's great stuff. I mean, we're all in ministry, so it's probably like somebody's like, I've been laboring, I've been praying, I've been fasting, I've been talking to this student, I've been, I feel like I've brought my best arguments to bear. 
I've loved them. I've served them. I've done everything I know how to do. I've shared from the depths of my heart. And if I'm real honest, it seems like they're moving further away from Christ. You ever have experiences like that? It's like all my best efforts seem to be backfiring. God's delays are not his denials. Don't live in fear. I have had the privilege, you might say, or maybe the uh, terror of having to teach multiple 15-year-olds how to drive. Okay? I also sometimes, sometimes when life is really busy, work-wise for me, and we're going on a trip sometimes, I'll ask my wife, will you drive so I can just sit there and I can do a bunch of work, you know, in the passenger seat. My wife is older than me. She always loves that I point that out. Okay, so technically, you know, she's been driving longer than I have. She's a good driver. She's not a perfect driver, but she's a pretty good driver. So when we're going on a trip and my wife is driving and I'm sitting in the passenger seat doing work, I'm not paying attention at all. I am. I'm hyper-focused on what am I reading, what am I writing. I just trust her. When I got a 15-year-old driving, I am not that way. Right? I, I am tuned in. I'm looking out for mailboxes. I'm looking out for pedestrians who might get murdered by my child. Right? I am hyper aware of every little move that they are doing. If they start to look at their phone, if they start to mess with the radio, I am sensitive. My head is on a swivel. So just ask yourself, you know. So some guy wrote a book years ago, I think coming out of World War II, called God is My Co-Pilot, which in one sense is probably a great book. But the idea should be, no, no, God is my pilot. If anything, I'm the co-pilot. I'm in the passenger chair. He's really in charge. Do I have responsibilities in this life? Absolutely. But my responsibilities are the lesser responsibilities, right? And do we tend to treat God more like a 15-year-old driver? Like, hey, God, I don't really trust you. You don't seem to be running the universe very well. Or do we tend to trust him more like a trusted spouse that we're like, they got it. They're an expert. They've been doing this. I don't have to worry. And here's the thing, guys. When we're living from a place of worry or fear or doubt... We're not saying this out loud, but what we are saying with kind of the attitude of our heart and oftentimes with the actions of our hands is this. I don't really trust you, God. I know you're all sovereign. I know you're all wise. I know you're all powerful. All that stuff. But let's just be honest. Practically speaking, I think I could run at least my little corner of the universe better than you're doing. I may not think that I'm Jim Carrey in that. What's the movie where he becomes God for a week or something like that? You know? Yeah, Bruce Almighty, okay? It's like, I don't think I could run the whole universe better than you, God. I'm not that stupid. But again, I really do feel like if you would just let me run my little corner of the universe, I could do a really better job. I got some better ideas, God. I don't know why you're doing this way. Now again, none of us are dumb enough or arrogant enough to say that out loud, but oftentimes that's the attitude of our heart that gets betrayed when we're locked into worry and fear. Now, he starts out in fear. He's going to move to faith. Look at what happens next. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and count, he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, crucial verse. Um, probably with the naked eye in that area of the uh, world, you can see about 4,000 stars at night. And so he's saying to this guy, look up, try to count them, you can't count them. Right? And, and what we know is, even if you could literally count all 4,000, that's not even skimming the surface, right? And God's like, don't worry that you're 100 years old and you don't have any babies. One day you're going to have so many babies coming from you, from your family, from your lineage, you won't even be able to number them. Trust me, be patient. Okay? And then it says, Abraham did. Abraham trusted him. Now, 
This is important. I think we all understand this, but it's an important point to make. How did people get saved, get right with God in the Old Testament? How did people in the Old Testament get saved or get right with God, get forgiven in the Old Testament? Shedding of blood. What's that? The shedding of blood. Okay. Yes, the shedding of blood. But the shedding of whose blood? Okay. No. Yeah. Look at this. It's right here. This is probably the clearest salvation verse in the Old Testament. And Paul will bring this forward in the New Testament oftentimes to quote this and look at this. Especially in Galatians. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He had faith. And because of that faith, God said, I reckon it to you as righteousness. It's not righteous. It's not, it's not saying, listen, your faith is so good, it's, it's enough righteousness to cover you. No, no, no. Reckon is like a banking term. It's an accounting term. It's a math term. It's like added. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add it up and I'm going to treat it like it's righteousness. Um, let's do this everybody flip over to Romans chapter 3 for a second this is important and yes Jacob you're saying it's by faith yes absolutely it's by faith but by faith in what God's promise yes God's promises <laughs> but even more specifically God's promise what what promise The coming Messiah. We look back to a crucified and risen Messiah. They look forward to a coming Messiah. And so, yes, Connor, the, the blood sacrifices were supposed to help them put their faith in a coming Messiah that they didn't fully understand. But Hebrews is very clear. The blood of bulls and goats can't cleanse you from anything. That's why they had to do it over and over and over and over and over again. Because it didn't work. It was just a reminder. It was a way to place their faith. But they looked forward to a future coming Messiah. Look at Romans chapter 3. And even before I read this, let me ask this question. And this is not a trick question, okay? This is a question that has more than one right answer. So don't feel like I'm trying to catch you. I'm not. I'm trying to say there's more than one right answer. So this is a good one to speak up on because you have more chances to get it right, okay? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Okay, to reconcile us to God. Yes. Because He loves us. Because He loved us. Yes. Fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, His fulfillment of prophecy. Obedience. Very good. Austin, yes. What did you say? His own obedience to the Father. Okay, His own obedience to the Father. Very good. High batting average. What's that? We have a high batting average here so far. Yeah, we're doing good. Every answer's <laughs> been right. Anybody want to try another one? You know, John Piper, after the Mel Gibson movie came out, uh, you know, The Passion of Christ, wrote a little book called, I think, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. You know, and I don't think he was wrong on any of them. So we keep going to 50, and I don't remember what all 50 are. But look at Romans chapter 3, because here's one that we don't often think in light of. And before I even read it, let me, let me say this. Typically today, if you're out there sharing the basic gospel with somebody, right? God made all people to have a relationship with him, but all people rebelled, so we're sinful, so 
We all deserve to go to hell, but Jesus died on the cross, paid a price for sins. If you trust in Jesus, you get to go to heaven. If you don't trust in Jesus, you go to hell. If somebody says, I don't like that message because blank, what, what tends to be the, the most common pushback against that basic gospel summary? Why would a good God ever send somebody to hell? Right? That, that's the most common. You know, before we read Romans, right? We think about who Romans was written by. Paul, who before he's a Christian, is maybe the most self-righteous Pharisee to ever live. He didn't wrestle with that problem. How can a good God send anyone to hell? That's not what self-righteous Pharisees wrestled with. What do you imagine they wrestled with? How can a holy God ever let in sinners, like real sinners, like David, an adulterer, and a murderer, like Abraham, a liar, really an adulterer in a different way? So look at Romans chapter 3, and this is probably the best summary of the whole gospel ever, right? We're familiar with it, at least with a lot of it. Let's just start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, this is again, this was Martin Luther's breakthrough. When, when that phrase in Romans is used, it's not talking about how holy God is in of himself. It's how he makes us righteous. It's the gift of righteousness, right? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made obvious, apart from the law, didn't come through the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, right? So all those blood sacrifices, they were pointing to it. They bear witness to it. They're like signposts to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's the part we know. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We know that part. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, atoning sacrifice, by His blood to be received by faith. It's like, got it, got it, got it. But now, here's the phrase that we sometimes don't think much about. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, based off of the last sentence of verse 25 and the first sentence, he repeats it twice, of verse 26, or the first phrase of verse 26, why did Jesus die on the cross? To vindicate God's righteousness. Why did God's righteousness need to be vindicated on the cross? Because sin needed punishment. Because sin needed punishment. Whose sin more specific, needed punishment? All of us, but mainly all the Old Testament saints. You see what I'm saying? Why did Abraham get to go to heaven when he died? Because Jesus died on the cross. Won the blood of bulls, won the blood of goats. It was the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did they understand all that? No. They were hoping in a very shadowy promise. My father said a Messiah is coming, a snake crusher is coming, a sin crusher. How's it going to work? I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. I just trust him. They had faith in the coming Messiah who would be slaughtered. How are they saved? In the exact same way as we are, in one sense. By faith in the Messiah. 
We have a faith that looks back and has a lot more crystal clarity. They had a faith that looked forward and was a lot more hazy and fuzzy. But how do people get saved in the Old Testament? Essentially the exact same way we are. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. We hear a word about a finished work. They heard a word about a coming work. They look forward. You hear about it, and it grows faith in your heart. Okay. Um, now, that's kind of a side note, but not really. Because that's, that's, there's the whole covenant of grace. That's it. And it was the covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15 all the way to now and into eternity. And if you're like, man, are you sure that's what Paul's thinking about in Romans chapter 3? Just skip down a few verses. Go to Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And look at the verse he's going to quote. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when Paul is explaining the New Testament gospel of the cross and the resurrection, he says, let me tell you where this whole thing started. In some sense, he goes back to Genesis chapter 15. Could have gone back further, but that was far enough. So let me just pause there for a second. I know that's a lot. Anybody want to ask anything, comment on anything there? Yeah, so... Okay. Um, I guess just like in your experience, how do you typically explain? Cause you don't want to just take one passage in Scripture and be like, this is it, you want to understand it as a whole. And it's like obviously repeatedly different places. It talks about Abraham, justified by faith, justified by faith, all those things. But then James 2 talks about obviously this specific story um, of mm-hmm. Abraham and it's saying like basically it's like was Abraham not also justified by his works like he like it was a work that he did him yeah. delivering up Isaac and that's what justified him how do you typically explain to somebody like how yeah. that is not a contradiction that's a great question and in some sense we're going to get into that later on in the quarter but let me just give a brief answer now I think we talked about this a little bit last week. You know, there's some words in the English language, there's some words in Hebrew, there's some words in Greek that can be used in different ways. And justified is one of those. And whereas when Paul talks about justification, he primarily means justified, me and God. Be made right with God. Be justified with God. Be reconciled with God. When James is talking about it, he means it more, be justified in front of men. How can you know for sure that you're a Christian? How can you have an assurance of salvation? How can it be obvious to you that you have really already been made righteous. He's not as much talking about how you get saved, but as the proof of your salvation. Does that make sense? He says, show me your faith without works. Well, you can't. I can't show you. How can I show a human being my faith without works? You can't. He says, I will show you my faith by works. We, we, we kind of referenced this last week. It's like, it's easy to say I love God, right? You love God, prove it. Well, how do you prove it? You love people with good works. Does that make sense, Jacob? That makes a lot of sense. Just really quick. Yeah, Connor. The situation with Hagar and Ishmael. Mm-hmm. So he obviously has faith in God, but still yes. it's not perfect. Yes. Can, can you comment on that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, and we're going there. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna comment on that. Um, but yes, let me just do that now. That, that's a great point. He obviously has faith in God, but it's not perfect. I would say about myself, 
I'd say about all of y'all, even though I don't know you all that well. I'd say about every Christian I've ever known, even the greatest, strongest, most mature Christians, like Frank Barker, obviously they have faith in God, but which one of our faith is perfect? Right? Every, every time we sin, in some sense, I mean the smallest sin out there, right? Let's just say you go to the CC's Pizza Buffet tonight. I don't even know if CC still exists. Is CC still a thing, you know? And you go in and you just blow it out. I mean, you just eat to the point of physical pain and nausea. And you know, it's like, I'm being a glutton right now. You know, like, I don't care. It's Friday. I've had a hard week. I'm not doing any big sins. This is a little sin. I spent my whatever it is now, six I'm going to get my money's worth, by golly. I'm living on a minister's salary. And you're just double-fisting pizza until you go and vomit in the parking lot. You sinned. Why'd you sin? I mean, in some level, you didn't trust God to provide for you the best gifts. You thought you had to go out and get them your own way by gorging yourself at the pizza buffet. Now, in some sense, that's a failure of faith. That's a weakness of faith. Abraham sleeping with Hagar is a lot worse, right? If you've got to choose a sin for Friday night, gluttony at the CC's pizza buffet or sleeping with the maid, go to CC's, right? It won't Ruin your life is bad. Some sins are worse than others. And yet when you trace them both down to the root, it's both just a weakness and immaturity, a lack of faith. Does that make sense? Connor, does that help? Yeah. yeah. Read. How did, so the, the promise was given to Abraham and he is saved by the blood of Jesus. Yes. But where was like the Messiah, the coming Messiah specifically uh, introduced to him? To who? To Abram? To Abram. Yeah, well, great, great question. We don't know what Abram had of, known, had, had of known of the promise to Adam. People will debate that. I tend to think probably not. Probably not. Some people would say no, because if, if, you, if you take all of the ages in Genesis literal, and it's like, okay, Adam's living 900 years, and so you're like... Well, Adam was probably still alive not that long before Noah was born. And so if Adam's telling everybody, hey, we got this great promise, we got this great promise, we got this great promise, Noah may have heard of it, tells his children, and then same thing, you you go with the years that Abram may have actually heard that promise. I think that's a stretch, although it's possible. And so what I would say in answer to your question is that probably... This is the promise that he got. I mean, it's in Genesis 12 that we just read. Okay, um, I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and uh, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now just think about that last phrase. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. How are all the families of the earth going to be blessed in me? That make any sense. Must be somebody coming from me. Now, and then you you go to verse 15, I mean chapter 15, and he does say, you're going to have a son, your very own son, and then your descendants are going to be like the number of the stars. Now, here's what I'm trying to say, guys. This is one reason, maybe this is the biggest difference. You Sometimes you ever wrestle and wonder, what's the difference between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint? Here's the biggest difference. And I think it may have been St. Augustine. 
uh, or it may have been B.B. Warfield is, is, I think, where I first heard this. But um, imagine that every piece of furniture in this room right now represents a piece of doctrine. So that whiteboard represents God the Father. This pulpit represents God the Son. This pulpit represents God the Holy Spirit. That table represents the sinfulness of humanity. This, you understand, all, all the furniture represents a doctrine. In the Old Testament, all the doctrine was just like this. It was in its proper place. It's just that all the lights were out. So if somebody in the Old Testament, even the best of the saints, wanted to understand what was going on, it's like they're groping around in the dark trying to understand how this world works. The only real significant thing that's happened in the New Testament is all the lights have come on. It's like, ah, I see how it all works together. I see how it makes sense. So we, we really ought to be almost in awe of guys like Abram who walked in so much faith when what they had was minuscule. I mean, at the time of Abram, no books were written down. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have any Bible. He just had this voice that spoke to him. We have so much more evidence for our faith. That makes sense? Just a couple of verses quickly that I, that I referred to earlier. You don't have to turn there. You can just write them down if you want to look at them later. This is Hebrews chapter 9. And maybe the, the, the one best book that bridges the gap between Old and New Testament is Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of heifers sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, I think that's another difference between Old Testament and New Testament saints. They'd go to worship. They'd see the slaughtered sacrifice. They're putting their trust in some kind of coming Messiah but they probably still went home every week feeling pretty guilty. I still feel like a rotten, dirty sinner. Chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For, and this is the key verse. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yeah. I'll skip back to verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Does that make sense? Like the point of going back to worship every year is like, you're still a sinner. You still need a Savior. And He hadn't come yet. You're still waiting. You're still hoping. You're still longing. You know, Hebrews 11 tells us, most of these great Old Testament saints, they died without seeing what they were ever hoping for. They had to die in faith. This is helpful. Anything else you want to talk about on this? Okay. Keep your finger in Romans 4 if you're still there because we're going to come back to it. But everybody go to, uh, back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, right, we've seen Abram's faith after his fear. <laughs> and let's look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So listen, he's got this wrestling faith here. God, how do I know? Now, flip back over to Romans chapter 4 for a minute. Romans chapter 4, and let's look in verse 18. This is talking about Abram, okay? In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. 
so shall your offspring be. So, humanly speaking, there was no hope that he's going to be the father of many nations. But he's hoping against hope anyway. He's trying to have confidence. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know, sometimes the extreme kind of crazy charismatics talk about faith healing. They're like, never, don't mention a word of doubt. Never doubt. Just, just trust God, right? Trust God for the healing. Trust. And it's like, that's, that's not the way the Bible talks. It's saying, Abraham was thinking, I'm 100 years old. I ain't fathered any kids yet. My wife is barren, obviously. But I trust you, God. He's, it's a wrestling faith. He's working it through. Okay. Uh, look at verse 20. I love verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, that is a really interesting verse, especially in light of the question you asked a minute ago, Connor. It's like, uh, it seemed like he had some distrust when he slept with Hagar. <laughs> but this is a great verse. Because saying, even though, in a sense, at the surface level, he was wrestling with his faith, if in some way we could x-ray and get all the way down to the bedrock of his soul, the foundation of faith was there. He at least had the seed faith. He had the bare minimum faith. He was still hanging on. I'm ultimately hoping in God. I'm ultimately trusting God. Yeah, I'm struggling. I'm way, but at the deepest level, I'm hanging on. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Let me just, guys, there's something so glorious here. Fully convinced? I mean, that sounds a little bit like an overstatement, right? Fully convinced? Why do you go sleep with somebody? I'm fully... Part of what I want you to see is when the New Testament, I mean, I just had a buddy that's been struggling and he was reading through Hebrews chapter 11 and he just took a picture of the text in his Bible and he texted me the picture and he said, how can the New Testament speak so positively about some of these people? Right? You ever read that? You ever read Hebrews 11? And you're like, that guy got in the hall of faith? And I don't know about you guys, this encourages my socks off because we read these stories and we're like, these people were freaking morons. I mean, their lives were a dumpster fire. And then we get to the New Testament, and you have Peter saying about people like, righteous Lot. You're like, righteous Lot? He offered his two virgin daughters to this crazy mob to get raped. The New Testament. And who wrote the New Testament? Not a trick question. Who really wrote the New Testament? God. It looks back on those old Testament saints, and he's so gracious in his judgment of them. Make sense? Like if you ever watch maybe your favorite team play, and maybe they have a horrible day, but they win in the last second of the game. And you're like, it was a great game. They did a great job. They overcame. Now, if somebody's like, really? You want to be honest? Like, really? They had a terrible game. But they pulled it out the end, right? And it's kind of like God is this good, gracious Father. That's how he looks at us. You want to be objective? You guys are a freaking mess. I don't know if God would say freaking, all right? But, you know, you guys are so screwed up. And yet, because I love you and because I'm gracious and because I'm kind, I'm going to say you're a hero of the faith. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And the New Testament... When I put my faith in Jesus, it's counted to me as righteous. It's like God says, you know what? Your bank account 
is negative one trillion. You have just overspent yourself into gigantic debt with me with all your sinning and your doubting and your struggling. But I'm going to cover it for you if you'll just trust me. And you say, I do trust you, Lord. And he says, let me put two trillion into your account. Wipe out the debt. Don't just get, get you back to zero. I mean, that would be a disaster, right? You know? I've had some of my kids before. I'm sure this has never happened to any of us. I've had myself before. Overdraft an account, right? It starts getting negative. You know, at least at Regions, I think every time you overdraft, they charge you $36, and then it's just like the spiral starts, you know? Next thing you know, you're 200 plus in the hole. And if I just say, okay, buddy, I'll give you 200 get you back to zero, in some sense, that doesn't really help because the next check is coming. I got to give them enough, not just to get them back to zero, but to get them in the positive. And that's what God, he says, I take away your record of sin. I cover it, I pay for it, and then I give you my record of righteousness. You're free, you're in the clear. I reckon it that way. Okay, listen, this was not some easy laid back faith. This is an active faith. It's a wrestling faith. It's a grappling faith. Do you remember Mark chapter 9? One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with his three main disciples comes down back into the valley. The other nine disciples got a dad that brings a boy that's having seizures, got a demon. And it's like the other nine are like trying to cast it out. Heal! And it's not working. And the dad comes to Jesus pretty desperate and says, I brought my boy to your disciples. They couldn't cast out the demons. If you can do anything, please. And Jesus almost sounds a little indignant. He's like, if I can. All things are possible to him who believes. You remember what the boy's daddy says? I do believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus says, how dare you not trust me? I'm not. No. He cast out the demon. Listen, that passage in and of itself is just one of many passages you can go to. All the crazy, extreme faith healer people, they're wrong. You don't have to have perfect faith. You have to have perfect faith. None of us are getting in. This is genuine faith. I do trust you, Lord. Would you help my lack of trust? And listen, this principle in some sense can be applied in so many different ways in the Christian life. I got this sin I'm struggling with, Lord. I repent. But help my lack of repentance because I know I haven't fully repented. Right? I got this issue in my life. I know you're calling me to surrender. I do surrender, God. But help my lack of surrender because I don't think I'm fully surrendered yet. It's a real, honest, genuine, sincere wrestling with the Lord. And that's what Abraham was doing. Do we wrestle with the Lord in prayer like this? Are we this honest? Are we this raw? You know, if you're angry at God, you should tell him. If you're doubting God, you should tell him. No. Sometimes when people start talking like this, they say, you know, and especially in our kind of modern day psychological counseling world, people say, it's not sin to be angry at God. It's not sin to doubt God. It's not sin to have any of those feelings. Like, no, no, it is sin to be angry at God. It is sin to doubt God. But here's the point. When I just try to cover it up and suppress it and pretend like it's not there, now I've just doubly sinned because now I'm lying about it. If you're angry at God or you're doubting God or you're fearful of God in a sinful way, He already knows it. He's not going to be shocked. The best thing you can do is talk to Him about it, process it with Him. That's what we see Abraham doing, right? God, I'm trying to believe you, but I'm struggling down here. I mean, in some sense, I've already taken some gigantic steps of faith. I can't wait out here. I've been waiting on you for 25 years i got 25 years of faith in the bank. 
And yet I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling. Okay? Listen, we need to throw off all of our self-righteous attempts to make ourselves look better in front of other human beings, but certainly in front of God. Because he already knows. It's just a fool's game. You remember in the New Testament, we won't look at it, but there were going to be two kind of supernatural births really close together. Right? John the Baptist, Jesus. Angel comes to announce both of them. The announcement comes to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. He had a question about it. Mary had a question about hers as well. How did the angel respond to Zacharias? Mute. Yeah. You dare question me, boy? You're going to be silent until the baby comes. That's, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Shut your mouth for nine months. When Mary asked her question, how did the angel respond? Much more. He gave her, he said, listen, Mary, I can't explain, again, this is the, the Olin translation, right? I can't explain the whole thing to you, Mary, but here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and you're going to get pregnant. You don't have to sleep with anybody. Why the different response? Yeah, I think the best understanding is Mary was just a humble child saying, I don't get it. I, I, help me understand. I believe help my unbelief. How's this going to work? I mean, I don't know much. I'm this little peasant girl out in the country, but I, get, I understand the birds and the bees, right? I, help me. Zechariah was kind of more this old, cantankerous priest. <laughs> I got a lot of knowledge, a lot of righteousness. I never heard of anything less. I don't get it. That don't make sense. I don't think this is real. Kind of a more arrogant question. So listen, what's my point in all this? There's a good, godly, humble, right way to wrestle in prayer and be brutally honest with all your doubts and fears. Do it humbly. Not in a proud, arrogant, self-righteous, scoffing way. And when you do it that way, you'll get more grace. Does that make sense? So, Abraham's tempted to live by fear. He's fighting to live by faith. And then he's going to get it fulfilled. All right, so back to Genesis chapter 15. And again, look at, look at his question in verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, so covenant-keeping creator, how am I to know that I shall possess it? My faith is weak. I need some encouragement. Another little side note because we're all in ministry here. You ever have a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, maybe a bad year? This is a great prayer to pray. I've prayed this prayer so many times. Lord, struggling down here. By your grace, I'm going to try my best to keep being faithful no matter what. But I would like a little encouragement. It would help me to have a little encouragement. Because I feel like I've been getting a lot of discouragement lately. And it, guys, it's amazing how when I honestly, genuinely pray that prayer, something will happen. Kind of out of the blue. I'll have somebody call me from like 20 years ago and say, Hey man, you, don't, you may not even remember me, but it's Sanford one time, blah, 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 blah. And it just lifts my spirits. God's a good daddy. And when we're a good child that's just honest and not living by pretense and just saying, hey, I'm struggling, I need help, he's glad to help. That is the life of faith. So God's going to answer him. So there's fear, there's faith, and now there's fulfillment. Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now just notice what happened here. He says, how can I know for sure? And God said, go get all these animals. That's all he told him, right? Go get the animals. But Abram did more than that. He went and got all the animals. He cuts them in half, and then he kind of lines them apart from each other. Now, why is that? Because in these ancient Old Testament times, there was kind of this common pattern, a tradition, that if you had some larger city-state that had a king, and there was some nearby kind of smaller city-state, and the larger city-state wanted to make a vassal of this smaller city-state, basically take taxes from them and stuff. The king and his entourage might ride to town, the army, basically saying, we can conquer you if we want to. We're not going to conquer you. We're here to protect you. We're here to take care of you. If anybody attacks you, we'll defend you. For a small price, of course. And the smaller mayor of the little village town might say, how can I know? How can I trust you? That if I really pay my taxes and then some warring horde comes over the mountain that you'll actually protect me. And they would make treaties. And back then you didn't have lawyers like we did, so you didn't go sign your life away on a bunch of pieces of paper. You didn't have a handshake deal. You didn't have anything. I say, oh, here's what we'll do. We're going to have this covenant feast, and part of what we'll do is we'll get a bunch of animals, we'll chop them in half, we'll lay down the halves. And then sometimes the big king and the little mayor would walk through the pieces of the animals together and kind of say the terms of the covenant. I'm promising to protect you. You're promising to serve me. Do you you remember the way that I kind of uh, defined the conditions of the covenant, week one, the Adamic covenant? I'll satisfy you. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. And you'll serve me. Sometimes the big king would say, I'm not walking through the pieces of the animals. You walk through the pieces of the animals by yourself. You pledge loyalty. Now, you don't have to be an ancient Near East historian to understand. What was the point of the cut-in-half animals and walking between them while you said the words of the covenant? What's the implication? That's the consequence if you break it. If I break covenant, I get cut in half. So Abraham knows what's happening here. He's getting a treaty with God. He's making a covenant with God. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Almost certainly because he's like, oh no. Remember we said he's a pretty powerful, prosperous man. He had a, his own little army of 318 people. Having to make covenant with a big city-state, that's pretty terrifying. Having to make covenant with the living God, it's overwhelming. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he's, he's giving him some prophecies, prophecies, some predictions, People are going to be slaves in Egypt. They're going to come back. They're going to inherit this land. But you, you're going to live in peace. You're going to live and die in peace. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Which is, let's just be honest, it's really weird. But the book of Exodus, when God wanted to manifest his presence on the mountain at Sinai, what were kind of the two major signs? You remember? Yeah, there, there was a cloud, there was smoke, there was fire. This is a manifestation of God, of God's presence showing up. And look at what it does. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, and it passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and it goes on to kind of explain all the land and the people that it's going to be taken away from. And then the chapter's over. And we move on to a new story. And you notice what happened? Abram never had to walk through the pieces. Now that never, from our understanding, was the way it went. That the big king, the ruler, would walk through the pieces, but he wouldn't make the little vassal walk through. So what's happening? God's saying, in some sense, Abram, I'm taking the burden of both sides of the covenant on my back. I break the covenant, which I'll never break the covenant. I'll be cut in half. But even if you break the covenant, I'll be the one slaughtered to make sure the covenant can stand. The fire, the smoke, in some sense, is the power of God. Right? The beauty of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God. Now, this covenant here, you can define it. It's a unilateral, which means one party. It's a unilateral treaty made in blood. What does that mean? Death is the consequence with implications. So I think this is a good little short definition of when we talk about covenant of grace, it's a unilateral treaty made in blood with implications. Sometimes when you read and study about this, and y'all will probably come across this in some of your reading, you'll have some people talk about, well, there's conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. That's not the most helpful language. Okay? What's important to note, and what a lot of times those people are trying to get after is this, this wasn't a negotiation, right? Like if two of y'all decided that you were going to buy a car from one another, one of them's got a little bit more money. The other one's got a little less money. One of them's got the car. One of you needs the car. You say you negotiate because you're kind of like peers, right? I'll give you five thousand for the car. Nah, I think the car's worth six thousand. You go back and you negotiate. There's no negotiation here. God just said, "Hey, get the animals." Abraham did it, and then God just said, "I got this." But there was no option. Like, hey, Abraham, do you want in or out? It was just like, do this. It's more like an arranged marriage. Okay? Sinclair Ferguson said this, and it was, it was so helpful. There's no conditions. I mean, that's, that's not, of course there's conditions, but God met the conditions. Better think about the implications. It was a one-way treaty. It was unilateral. God said, here's the deal. There's no negotiating, but yes, there are massive implications. The implications are, I have to trust this God. I have to obey this God. Okay? But here's the key. My obedience is not the fulfillment of the covenant. Right? Or it's ruined from day one. We all know that. We experience that. 
it's a lot more like an adoption in modern days, right? We all probably know somebody that's adopted somebody, right? Either they flew over to Europe, that's the way it works a lot of times, and there's some poor kid in this Romanian orphanage and he's suffering, and these rich Americans fly over there and they spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and they bring this little three-year-old home. How much say did the three-year-old have in it? Zero. No negotiation. It was a unilateral treaty put down on this child. And the child might rebel against it at some point. And the parents have implications. Not conditions, right? It's not like, hey, if you don't obey us, we're sending you back to Russia. I mean, unfortunately, that actually has happened once or twice, and that's a terrible example. But good parents, godly parents say, we're going to love you for the rest of our lives, even if you're rebellious. But yes, there's implications. We want you to obey us. We want you to be a good boy. We want you to grow up. We want you to mature, right? Great picture of salvation, the covenant grace. Okay. Now, also, part of what you see here in uh, verse 18 on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. Do you see that? I'm in the ESV. He didn't say, I will give this land. He says, I give this land. Or it could be translated, I have given. Okay? In the Hebrew, you would say, this is a perfect verb. It's a verb of completion. Though it's not done already. He's talking about something that's going to happen 400 plus years in the future. And God's saying, it's a done deal. Because when God speaks His promises to us, it's a done deal. Take it to the bank. Even if it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. Okay? I've given this land to your descendants. They don't even exist yet. They're going to exist, and I'm going to take care of them. Now, let's do a bit of application here, okay? Again, think about where are you struggling the most to trust God's promises? Where are you struggling the most with doubt, with fear, with worry? Okay? All doubt is sin. Another way to ask the question, where are you doubting that God's going to reward you? Maybe a better way to ask the question. Where are we doubting that God in himself is enough of a reward that I really don't need anything else? That's the real doubt. Okay. Second, are you wrestling in prayer like Abram did about that doubt and fear? God, I really want this thing. I think this is a really good thing. Yet, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Help me trust you. I want to trust you. I'm trying to trust you. I believe. Help my belief. And the third thing is this. Because I think some of us, as we're listening to this, I mean, we, we, we've made a big deal today talking about um, how much better things are in the New Testament than the Old Testament, right? And rightly so. But there's one way we can make an argument that sometimes, every once in a while, it seems like things were better in the Old Testament than the New Testament. It's like, Abram got a personal visitation, right? I mean, when Abraham, after this, struggled to doubt, he could say, I heard an audible voice. I saw this smoking fire pot. It's like God showed up on my property and spoke to me. And all but y'all, there are times when I'm like, hey, God, if you're still handing out any of these Old Testament test, you know, kind of experiences, I'd like to have one, you know? You take your pick, right? A vision, audible voice, an angel, any. You, you choose, Lord. And, you know, 45 years old, I still haven't gotten one. But, in conclusion, two things I'll say. One, Abraham is a great example of wrestling and prayer. He's a great Old Testament example of, I believe, help my belief. But there's at least one New Testament example that's a lot better. 
about how to wrestle in prayer in the hardest times. And this is the ultimate death nail to all the extreme, charismatic, faith healer type people. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his humanity, had perfect fear. I mean, excuse me, he did have perfect fear of the Lord. He had perfect faith. He's the only guy that ever lived and had perfect, complete faith. And yet, when he gets up to the precipice of looking into hell that he is about to have to swallow, he's like, Father, I don't like it. I don't want it. Is there any other way? Yet not my will but thine. There's a submission. There's the faith. Is there a way out? I want a way out. If there's a way out, give me a way out. Perfect faith. And God said, no, there's no way out. Perfect faith doesn't always mean you get what you want. And then even on the cross, when he literally is experiencing hell, I mean, the wrath of the covenant, his soul, in a sense, is being split in two like those animals because of all our sin. He screams out this, my God, my God. He doesn't even call him my father anymore because he feels so distant. He feels like he's out of, he feel, feels like he's out of covenant with the father. And yet he can still say, you're still my God. By faith, even though I don't feel like you're my God, I know you're my God. I trust you're my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you... Listen, he knew the answer to that question, but he was overwhelmed in his humanity with the emotion of the moment. In my hour of greatest need, Father, why have you abandoned me? But he kept on trusting, right? Because after that he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Right? Job 13, 15, Job said, Though he slay me, I will trust him. Jesus had to live that. Now, none of us were there. But it's a very interesting verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul is kind of rebuking them for going back to a faith plus works type religion rather than just a religion of pure faith alone. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Christ was crucified. Thus we know, none of the people in the Galatian church were at the actual crucifixion. What's Paul saying? Is that when by faith we trust, it's like the eyes of our heart have been opened and we have seen. And listen, let's just be real honest with each other. If we could trade places with Abram, you get some pretty cool experiences, audible voices, smoking fire pots, but you got no Bible. When somebody says, tell me about this promise you're trusting in, you're like, ah, something about an heir and a, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trusting him. When somebody asks me and you, what's this trusting? I say, I, I tell you, I tell you about a historical event happened 2,000 years ago in Palestine. God became a man. He hung on the cross, and all of God's anger at me for my sin got dumped into his soul, and because of that righteous act, I am free. It's a lot more assuring, isn't it? It's a lot more foundational and fundamental and empowering. So, Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are our shield that protects us from the wrath of God. You are our very great reward. And we need you. And Lord, thank you for all the good gifts that you give us as well in this life. Help us to enjoy them to the full in proper ways. 
And yet, even when it seems like you are stripping from us so many of the good gifts, help us be able to honestly say, Christ is my Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the covenant of grace. Thank you, Lord, for walking through the pieces of the slaughtered animals for us in our place. Thank you for ultimately sealing and signing your covenant with the blood of your own son. Thank you for salvation. Grow our faith, strengthen our faith, deepen our faith, take away our sinful doubt, fear, and worry. We believe, help our unbelief. We pray all this in Christ's name. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.